The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. And the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia said that with uh, global warming, there would be uh, more opportunities there and that they were going to try and get free and unhindered access to the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And he, he mentioned riches of uh, the continental shelf. Global warming is changing many aspects of geopolitics. Even though the ice hasn't melted yet, the Arctic is becoming a battleground because of climate change. So, which nations are facing off, and what weapons are they pointing at each other? You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Jason Fields and Matthew Galt. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields with Reuters. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Ian Ballantyne is a former journalist and a current naval historian. He covered Allied naval operations uh, both during Operation Desert Storm and the war in Afghanistan. These days, he writes books about naval history and edits Warships magazine. He's here to walk us through the strategic importance of Russia's favorite new northern territory, the Arctic. So, other than a shrinking number of polar bears, what's in the Arctic that governments really want? What's in the Arctic that the Russian government really wants is uh, mineral rights, and uh, what they're doing is they're establishing their their sovereignty over what they claim is a, an extension to the continent, their continental shelf, which uh, stretches up into the Arctic. And actually, they have claimed uh, the North Pole. They've actually sent submarines down to plant the Russian flag under the North Pole, and they aim to claim that as theirs. Is there any reason to take that kind of claim seriously from uh, you know, a legal standpoint? Um, I mean, I'm not a legal expert, but if they're able to go up there and uh, do what, you know, the British, my countrymen did centuries ago, just stick a flag in it and say, well, we were there first, and this this stretches all the way back and is part of our continental shelf, I guess it will be hard for other people to argue against them. But certainly, I would say Canada, Norway, and Denmark are certainly going to have something to say about that. So they are basically looking... Um, securing it by being first and being, I would say, the most uh, brazen about making their claim. But they're not the only ones to operate submarines underneath the North Pole, right? I mean, so the, the North Pole is uh, under the North Pole, or rather under the Arctic, under the Arctic ice, is, uh, has been an operating area for submarines for a long, long time. I mean, the Americans um, were the first to send a nuclear-powered submarine under the the North Pole, actually under the North Pole, that would be the Nautilus in the late 50s. But actually the, the Germans operated from submarine bases in northern Norway and were up there in the ice, I think even going up off Siberia, which was very difficult for them in U-boats, uh, diesel-electric submarines. And uh, the British during World War II also would send submarines up there. And in fact, Royal Navy submarines uh, operated from Polyano Inlet in uh, the Kola Peninsula for, for a while. So it's, it's been a submarine operating area for a long time. Um, but the Russians are obviously with their northern fleet based out of the uh, Kola Peninsula and operating from the White Sea. They're the guys that have got the most submarines up there and are probably exploiting it the most at the moment, I would say, and have been since the 80s. Ian, 
do you get a sense that this is actually about mineral rights or is this kind of about is this a strategic position for them and is kind of about power projection as well yeah i mean it's about power projection but if you turn the world map around and you look at the world from moscow then obviously as we all know the the, the russians fear invasion because they've had it in world war one and obviously 1812 and world war ii so they they look at the world from there they see as um peter the great uh, the emperor the czar who established the Russian Navy for the first time in the, in the early 18th century, they see limited access to the sea and encroaching potential enemies all around. So they, they number one, uh, want access to, to the open ocean. Uh, and then number two, I guess, they want somewhere to put their uh, ballistic missile submarines so they don't have to go all the way out into the Atlantic to potentially threaten uh, America primarily. And then, of course, they, they, their economy is very reliant upon oil and gas, and uh, they, they want to exploit that as well. So there's, a, there's you know, a lot of advantages and a lot of things at stake for them. Does the United States or any other country have strong competing interests, meaning are, is anybody else trying to exploit whatever resources there are up there? Um, I don't think, I mean, obviously the U.S. Navy has operated up there for decades and continues to. Uh, the Seawolf-class submarines, which are quite mysterious vessels, have uh, several times been sent up in recent years to uh, poke around under the ice and show the Russians that it's not just their environment. And I'm sure one or two Royal Navy submarines have, but I don't think there's the same, apart from Canada, Greenland, which is, I think, its foreign policy and defence policy is run by Denmark, um, and also, you know, places like Iceland. They, they'll obviously be interested in Norway uh, because they will have their own thoughts about exploiting the mineral resources. But the big player in terms of capability to counter any any Russian movements would, would have to be the US Navy because it's the only Navy that has the, the critical mass and the capability. So America will obviously see it um, as a critical of critical interest. And as the ice thaws, as the global warming picks up pace, then obviously the whole area is more uh, open to navigation and trade. So, uh, and that could go right round to Alaska. And for the Russians, they're very interested in trade and taking uh, merchant vessels and exploiting the opportunities on the, uh, on the route to the Far East, uh, which they call the NSR, I believe, the Northern Sea Route. So they're very keen on that. So there's, there's trade routes, there's minerals, and then the strategic advantage for one side or the other as well. So for Russian shipping, that would save literally thousands of miles to be able to go along the, their northern coast, right? Yeah, yeah, well, for Chinese shipping, because obviously the Russians have a, a burgeoning strategic partnership with, with China. So, you know, I think you're talking about Chinese ships coming all the way over the top to Russia and to Europe as well. And, yeah, of course, Russian shipping too. They're building new atomic uh, icebreakers, which uh, are going to start helping to clear that route uh, ahead of uh, merchant vessels uh, from actually next year. And with 70% of Russian territory actually being in the north, then they, they're looking to the north, Siberia, and north towards the pole, as it were, uh, for expansion. And, uh, and that's, that's a stated objective of um, Vladimir Putin. You know, he's, he's quite clear about that. Can I just go back to one thing you mentioned, out of curiosity, with the Seawolf-class submarine? You said that it's mysterious. In what way is that? Well, it's a class of three submarines which um, were built just at the end of the Cold War, and they're, they're very big and very expensive. 
very powerful and it was seen that they were just too big expensive and powerful so it stopped at i think three they then switched to the a cheaper easier to manufacture version called the virginia class which is what the u.s navy is bringing in to replace the los angeles class and the sea wolf um there's not a lot of publicity about what they do and uh, it's said that they've been fitted with all sorts of um, surveillance equipment and other scientific equipment they disappear for months at a time whether it's over, out into the Pacific or around the top into uh, the Arctic and they carry out um, <laughs> things like surfacing at the North Pole or taking scientists to a thing called ISEX where there's all sorts of research goes on uh, in, in Prudhoe Bay, Alaska where they, they research the ice and ice conditions so those, those submarines are obviously special to the US Navy and occasionally you see one appear in Norway as happened a few years ago, and um, last time it was seen, it was it was um, way under the the other side of the uh, the North Pole, and uh, it turns up. And um, so, there's when something like that is made public, you have to think maybe that's a message to Russia that it can't just dominate the Arctic. So they're they're um, not a lot is known about what exactly they do, but they certainly must be important, I would say, to the U.S. Navy. And they're attack submarines rather than being uh, nuclear missile submarines. The U.S. Navy commonly calls them attack submarines. The Royal Navy would call them hunter-killers, um, and they are, they are armed with torpedoes, missiles, land-attack missiles. So they, are, they go out and primarily um, aim to hunt other submarines or fire uh, missiles at land targets, conventionally tipped, conventionally armed cruise missiles. Um, ballistic missile submarines would be found under the Arctic, and they would primarily, I, I, I would reckon, be Russian, and they would go out and hide under the ice from the Kola Peninsula or other bases up there with the northern fleet of Russia, and they sit under the ice in bastions. They call it the bastion concept, and they uh, have a range with their missiles of several thousand miles, so they could sit under the ice, wait for the doomsday call, surface, break through the ice, and launch their, their missiles, and they don't have to risk trying to break out into the Atlantic and be killed by the uh, attack submarines of NATO. And that was the Cold War. And I guess that game is still ongoing there and is starting to ramp up again, I think, with a new uh, tension between East and West. Right. So we're talking actually a solution to a geographical problem, which you alluded to earlier, which is that Russia has one or two warm water ports. I mean, there's uh, uh, one in Crimea, and, uh, which was so important and probably one of the reasons why Crimea was invaded or annexed, and then there's on the Baltic as well. But it's very constricted. Yeah, I was lucky enough in uh, back in the day when I was al- allowed to leave my bunker and get away from my desk. I was uh, I was lucky enough to visit Murmansk and Archangel and Sevastopol and also um, Saint Petersburg and Kronstadt, which is the main naval base guarding Saint Petersburg. So they they have. Fleets, uh, not only in the north, but also the Baltic, as you said, um, and also the Black Sea and the Pacific. And they are uh, very keen to ensure that access remains. And you're right, uh, the uh, annexation of the Crimean Peninsula was down to Russia preserving its ability to project naval power uh, in the Black Sea and also into the Eastern Mediterranean, as we've seen in the past few months. And with the northern fleet then Murmansk is the major fishing port or commercial port. But if you go up the inlet there um, towards the sea, and it's many miles long, 
all along there are naval bases and submarine bases and in the White Sea as well. And yeah, the, the, the warmer waters are restricted for the Russians, uh, restricted in the Baltic for certain times of the year and restricted in the north. And here my memory is going to, you're going to find that my memory fails slightly with geography, but either Archangel or Mamans doesn't freeze up. And that's the main thing that they want. Uh, I think it's probably Mamansk. Um, they want access to the sea. And they will, they will do things to gain that access that perhaps European nations who have moved on to the post-imperial era won't do. And hence you saw the annexation of Crimea, which was given to Ukraine when it was still part of the Soviet Union in the late 50s. So they, the Russians would see Crimea as being returned to Russia. And certainly Sevastopol is the spiritual home of the, the Russian Navy and very much. So they would never let that go. There's no way they'd let that go. And the Arctic provides a real solution, though, because if you're trying to get a nuclear missile submarine out from Sevastopol, you have to go through some really narrow straits. And that's got to be a great place for a hunter-killer submarine to sit, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not allowed to have nuclear submarines in the Black Sea. It's forbidden by international law. Oh, okay. And you can't... Yeah, I mean, an interesting thing about the recent events is that the Russians have built half a dozen uh, diesel-electric submarines, uh, improved uh, kilo-class submarines that they are going to base at Sevastopol. They're all armed with uh, the caliber cruise missile, and uh, at least one of those on the way from the build yard in uh, St. Petersburg, where it was built, has passed by Syria and lobbed a load of um, cruise missiles into Syria to help the regime, and then proceeded through the Turkish Straits, uh, which are governed by and um, safeguarded by Turkey under the Montreux Convention. And they, those submarines cannot then come back out again and do any more attacks on Syria. And they can only go out of the Black Sea uh, to go and get a refit. Uh, so there's very, very strict international rules governing submarines and, in fact, banning aircraft carriers, proper aircraft carriers, uh, in the Black Sea. So the Russians have two options uh, for um, nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines. One is the North, and the other is Vladivostok and uh, Kamchatka in the Russian Far East. And the Baltic has never had any nuclear-powered uh, ballistic missile submarines in it. It's had diesel submarines that have had nuclear missiles. But I think you'll find that there's also rules governing the Baltic too. So it's... Uh, Russia has a lot of things to deal with, um, and it, it decides quite sensibly, I suppose, from its point of view, that really it's got to dominate the north, where, the, where its biggest and most uh, formidable fleet is, and that um, Pacific is also important, but I think the northern fleet is still the premier force. What kind of infrastructure are they building in the Arctic? Are they building any buildings, and what other kind of weapons systems are, are going up there, or do we know? You know, I run, I run a naval magazine that has input from all sorts of very bright people who are a lot cleverer than me. And they, they look at these things and they analyse them. And they, they've been, you know, uh, we've had in various articles that they've been telling me that, you know, there's a massive investment in air bases and other military infrastructure. There's more um, ground forces being put up into the Arctic, the Russian Arctic, the high north of, of Russia. And uh, they are definitely um, have underway a huge... Uh, bid to upgrade the infrastructure, and that would include the Navy as well. So there's, you know, it's, uh, it's massive. And of course, we don't know what's going on. It's a blank, a blank space on the map to a certain extent. And that is all to, uh, to make sure that they retain their, their basic 
military, naval dominance up there. So they are doing that. It's happening. Yeah, it's going on. It's been going on for a few years. It seems like what you're saying is they're largely unopposed, at least on the surface. I mean, it. Is there anything comparable, like in uh, Hudson Bay or somewhere else uh, along the Canadian coast or, or anywhere else? Well, in terms of a military uh, sort of naval base? Yeah, naval base or any other kind of military installation. Well, I think, I think the country that's uh, doing the most to reorientate it um, is probably Norway. The Norwegians are certainly um, well aware of, because they're neighbors of Russia and they face them, they're well aware of things that are going on, and they have, have reorientated there as, uh, a few years ago their strategic outlook towards the potential Russian threat. And in fact, they're ahead of any other nation in NATO when it comes to that. In fact, ahead of the ahead of the leaders of NATO in worrying about it. So they have established a, a major HQ up there. But they, you know, the Norwegians don't have a huge amount of hardware. Uh, or people, uh, they do have visits from Royal Navy and uh, other NATO warships for anti-submarine warfare visits. The Canadians, you know, they, their navy is um, is small, you know, so it, it's one of the leading NATO navies, but it's not a large navy, and, you know, the Royal Navy is not very large these days. I don't think there's any comparable physical presence in terms of military stuff or naval stuff, but the thing about the Russians is, quite a bit of their equipment is legacy equipment so and they're replacing it they are replacing it now but it, they went through two decades of very little activity whether in the air or at sea and that that is over that that period of 20 years or let's say 91 to let's say uh, the invasion of sorry the annexation of Crimea I think maybe that was the the period you could look at where there wasn't uh, a Russia that was quite so assertive but that's changed and they now they are now assertive, and the new submarines, and I guess the new infantry units, the new aircraft, and all that, are now emerging. Uh, and I don't think there's the same emphasis at all in uh, in the West uh, on navies or, or the military. I don't think it compares, because we're we're different, different, completely different kinds of countries with a different outlook on the world. So the, the that's the long answer to say no. I don't think there's anything else that is quite so concentrated in terms of a military presence in the Arctic. I don't think there is anything to rival what they're doing at all. But at the moment, it's kind of confined to their traditional areas. And, and I think the move out towards the North Pole um, to claim that actually a sovereign Russian territory, as it were, is the thing that will really cause problems. Has the rest of the world already objected to Russia's claim? I mean, everybody else is on record. Yeah, yeah they have, not in any kind of uh, a muscular way, but... Uh, yeah, they've certainly done that. And Canada has said that it's got competing rights and interests there, and, and so have the other nations. Um, Norway and Denmark have all said that, you know, we've got interest there as well. So, But it, it will take time to go through consideration and any arbitration that comes up. I'm not a legal expert. It's not the side of it that I know a lot about. Certainly in terms of stating equal rights to it, I don't think those other nations are sitting back. But it's the Russians that are using their muscle to uh, show off and uh, say, look, we're, we're in there first and we're big, you know, like that. Yeah. And, and they really have muscle here in terms of submarines in a way that they don't, you know, we, we've talked on the show before about uh, Kuznetsov aircraft carrier, which is something of a joke in a way. And they have exactly one aircraft carrier. 
But, I mean, as far as submarines and submarine technology go, they have a lot of submarines, and they're supposed to be world-class, right? Yeah, they are, and they're not, they're not far behind the, um, the curve, uh, I would say. They're very close to the quality of uh, the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy in terms of nuclear submarines. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't see anything. To, to be honest with you, uh, I wouldn't ever see any uh, Russian warship of any kind as a joke uh, at all because they are big, they're beefy, they're well-protected, they've got the will to use them, and their weaponry has always been very impressive. And I visited a, a cruiser, I think it was the Azov, in Sevastopol in 91, just before the end of the Soviet Union, and the ship herself looked like something out of, the, uh, out of World War II, but when they brought the missiles up, they were, cut, they were cutting edge of modern uh, missiles. So the Russians will always have a big punch... And certainly their kilo, improved kilo-class submarines are excellent submarines and heavily armed. And the uh, amazing thing about the, uh, the Russian Navy is that it doesn't hold back on getting a small warship and chucking a load of capability into it. So they've got new corvettes that can fire cruise missiles and their new destroyer, uh, the, the Grigorovich, I think it was called, came through the Turkish Straits uh, a week or two ago and that ship, not the Kuznetsov or the Peter the Great nuclear-powered battlecruiser, was used to bombard Syria, um, and uh, she fired um, cruise missiles. So they, they've got a whole range of new stuff, and I wouldn't ever underestimate what they could do with the old stuff either, surface and, and submarine. Um, do we have any kind of sense of what climate change has done to the Arctic, and if that's helped or hurt the Russian cause there? They definitely see it as a, uh, an opportunity. I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about the Russians, but the, the U.S. Navy and the American military Department of Defense has, has articulated its own new policy as well uh, um, a couple of years ago, at the end of uh, 2013. But the, the Russians do see it as an opportunity, and during a, um, a meeting of the top guys held aboard... Uh, a warship in, I think, Kaliningrad. Putin and um, his top men said that they were announcing a new strategy that would take advantage of, uh, of all of that. And the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia said that with uh, global warming, there would be uh, more opportunities there and that they were going to try and get free and unhindered access to the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And he, he mentioned riches of uh, the continental shelf and uh, said that, you know, they're going to develop those riches and preserve them for future generations. So they're looking at what's going on and they're thinking, we're going to be in there uh, ahead of uh, these other guys. So that's, that's uh, definitely on their agenda. So last question, which is with all of this in consideration and all of the, uh, the warships that are up there and the various strategic uses for the Arctic, do you see the Arctic as a particular potential flashpoint for conflict? Um, I mean, it's, uh, I think sometimes we get over, um, mainly down to, I suppose, sometimes media reporting and a lack of appreciation of quite the scale of, what the, of the Cold War, to be honest. I mean, it's nothing like the Cold War. The Cold War was truly, truly dangerous, and there were dozens of nuclear submarines from NATO uh, and also the Soviet Union at sea, all in... Uh, not all, but many of them in close proximity 
Uh, and it was a very, very dangerous time. We just didn't know about it because it was happening out there. So there's no way that what we're seeing today compares in terms of what I would call frontline risk of a collision or an exchange of fire. There's no way it compares to that at all. But certainly compared to what we've had over the past 20 years, the, the, the period of very little activity in terms of submarines and surface warships up there, I think will will draw to a close and there will be a gradual increase. Uh, one of the main things that the Russians have always been worried about, and they're probably not so worried about that these days, is, was US Navy aircraft carriers going into the, the northern waters up there through the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap into the Greenland Sea and maybe around, and then launching nuclear-armed strike jets. I don't think they see that as a problem so much now, but they've always been worried about that. And that was back in the 50s, and that was what they were really concerned about. So I don't think we're going to see anything quite as dangerous as that. I don't think it's uh, we need to worry about seas on, in which there are so many submarines you could walk across the ocean on. I mean, there's, there's going to be a few, and there's going to be some tense encounters, and there's been some evidence of that already, but I don't think it compares yet, or will do for a while, to the Cold War. Well, Ian Ballantyne, thanks so much for joining us to talk this over. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And it was um, good to talk it over with you. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Head to iTunes and tell us what you think. Your ratings are a big part of helping other people find the show. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at war underscore college. The show was created by me, Jason Fields, and Craig Hedick. Matthew Galt co-hosts the show and finds our amazing guests. Our producer is Bethel Hopte. 